Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome back. This is the History Hit Warfare podcast, and I'm your host, James Rogers. If it is your first time here, well, we are dedicated to military history from Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations through to the Normandy landings and 9-11. And we're slap bang back into the Second World War for this episode because we've got Saul David on the podcast. We had him on earlier in the year to promote his new book, Crucible of Hell, about Okinawa, but he's back. Nothing can stop him producing these excellent books and this one is on the special boat service the SBS you've all heard of the SAS but the SBS was the world's first maritime special operations unit it was founded in the dark days of 1940 it started as a small and inexperienced outfit before going on to change the course of the second world war and Sol tells us all about this he tells us about why it was founded what it was like working with the current SBS and researching the book and he takes us through some of the most daring missions the SBS has ever undertaken. So here is the ever-brilliant Sol David on the Special Boat Service. Hi Sol, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Very good, James. Very nice to be back too. Thank you. Great to have you back on. The last time we spoke, you were putting the finishing touches on a new authorised history of the Special Boat Service, the SBS. And this is now out. SBS, Silent Warriors. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Always nice to have a book out in almost normal times. Not quite yet, but almost normal times. I mean, I've been able to do a few events. Uh, I had a book launch in London, which was great fun, full at the In and Out Club, in which some of the current SBS made an appearance. So that was quite exciting. I mean, we had to be very hush-hush about it, but at the same time, it was obvious, wasn't it? A book about SBS that was authorised probably would have one or two of the current guys. <laughs> Now, that's fantastic. I mean, I like the way you say it's exciting. For me, it would have been a little bit nerve-wracking. You've got current members of the SBS in the room. If you say anything wrong, I mean, I'd have been scared, Sol. Yeah, exactly. I knew some of them because <laughs> I've been down I've been down at Poole during the research of the book and they, 
took me out in canoes and they took me out of the water actually freezing cold this is january this year during lockdown lockdown didn't really seem to be operating that much in pool i have to confess (laughs) probably because in a state of national emergency you need the sbs but in any case i had a great time down they got to meet quite a few of them and their intention really is not to co-opt me to write nice things about the SBS, I don't think. Oh, I might be wrong. I think it was just to give me a kind of sense of the ethos of the unit today and how there are these links with going all the way back to the Second World War. And one thing's not in any doubt, they're incredibly proud of their history and they're also very pleased that it's finally been put together in an authorised form in as comprehensive a way, I think, as it's ever been done. Well, you use this term authorised. I suppose I've got a really nerdy question as a historian. What's the difference between an authorised history and an official history? Does it just mean you've got much more freedom to tell the stories that you want to tell? I think so, in a nutshell. I mean, really, in very loose terms, authorised, certainly in the case of this book, means that you've got the full support of the original organisation and they're going to help you in any way they can, both in terms of archives, which was, of course, crucial to this book because they opened the SBS archives for the first time but also really just in general PR sense for it to be known that they're behind the book and that's invaluable too now the downside would come as you quite rightly suggest James and and, you know many people have asked me this question is to you know was there any stricture on what I wrote there absolutely was not I was able to choose any of the stories I like and tell those stories in as much depth as I like and the reason is this actually I mean I would love to write stories more recently about the SBS needless to say But the MOD, the so-called disclosure unit, which really keeps tabs on all the secret organisations in this country, won't let anything, as far as the special forces are concerned, anything official or authorised or in any other way acknowledged after 1948, believe it or not, James. Now, in my view, that's a little bit too long ago. (laughs) That's extreme. Yeah, it's a bit extreme. And I'm hoping to persuade them on the back of this book that maybe we can move that all the way forward to the Falklands. But, you know, watch this space because at the moment, that's really where they're operating. And you might have noticed that some of the other authorised books recently, MI5, MI6 and also GCHQ, There's also in those books, although they do bring the story further forward, the real cooperation, some of the documents are very much held after the Second World War. So it's, you know, it's the same for them too. God, it must have been daunting being the first person to go into those opened archives of the SBS. Are they a massive archives? I mean, was it just an incredibly difficult task to think about how and where you're going to start with this book and telling this enormous history of these heroic personnel? I wish they'd been bigger, I have to confess. I mean, one of the really extraordinary things about this organisation, both then and now, is that they are very much under the radar. They like it like that. But the consequence of that is that no one is encouraged, actually, to write their story, as it were. So not only are the official records limited because these special operations, you know, in many cases, people haven't come back. You know, there are only one or two witnesses. You often find, by the way, James, with these sorts of organisations, and I include spies in that, that rarely do they get acknowledged in terms of gallantry medals, for example, or, you know, some kind of award. And again, that's because there are too few people involved. But to answer your question more specifically, there was some great stuff there, but I wish there'd been more. And I really wish there'd be more colour. I mean, one of the things, of course, that's so important for a book of this type is, yes, you want it to be authoritative. You want the original records of the operation orders and all the spine of the story to be accurate. But you also want to bring the story alive by as much colour as possible. So in that was the bit of the archives. If anything that was lacking, that was the bit that was lacking. But nevertheless, there was some great material there. 
So we don't get the daring missions in the Falklands in this book, at least, the ones where they go behind enemy lines, and there's no discussion of hunting for Osama bin Laden, although I expect to see that in books two and three, which I'm sure will come in the future, Sol. But we go back to the Second World War, at that point that the SBS was founded, and those insanely daredevil missions that took place. So tell us, when exactly was the SBS founded, and, well... What sort of person did they recruit? Who was an SBS person? Well, the key date is October. Actually, we don't know the specific day, but the moment came during the end of October 1940. And the year is really important, actually, because the SAS, for example, it's well known, were founded in the desert the following year. And most people would assume the SAS were our first special forces. Actually, it was the SBS. So in October 1940, a group called Eight Commando was operating up in the Highlands. It was training, basically, in the Highlands with its base in Vareri. Now, Aknakari, which became the commando training centre, that was a year or two later. Actually, in 1940, they were based in Inverary. And one of the members of Eight Commando was an extraordinary character called Roger Courtney, who, aged 19, had gone out to Africa, really to make his name. To, he was an adventurer. He wanted to see the world. He became a big game hunter. He became an explorer. He, and this is the real key to understanding the story of the SBS, he paddled single-handedly up the White Nile River, a journey of more than 4,000 miles from the center of Africa. And it was on that journey that he realized how useful a canoe or a folbot, as it was known at the time. And that's got sort of German origins, as I'm sure you know, James. I mean, you can kind of hear in this folding boat, basically, which is really just canvas and wood, pretty basic, often two-man. And certainly in the case of the SBS, it was generally used as a two for insertion of two-man teams. And Courtney realised that this was an incredibly stealthy way to arrive at the enemy's coastline. And if you get there without anyone knowing you're coming, you can do some extraordinary things and get away without discovery. And so he plotted this, really, he challenged the Navy. He said, I can approach one of your ships. I can get on board. I can steal something that will show you I've done all of that and you can't stop me. So they said, well, try, because we don't believe it for a minute. And it's exactly what he did. Single-handedly, interestingly enough, he paddled towards this commando ship, managed to scale up the anchor chain. So it said that might be a bit apocryphal, but certainly he got on board somehow and he stole a gun cover that would prove to the Navy that he could do it. And it was from that point that he was given permission to form what was originally known as the Fullbot Troop and later SBS. So that is the start of it. And the idea was you're going to use canoes to take in these men deep behind enemy lines and commit all kinds of acts of mayhem. I mean, it could be sabotage, it could be dropping off agents, and of course it could be intelligence gathering. And that's the origins, James. And slowly but surely, as more and more different groups coalesce together, you've got the various organizations, SBS, COP, and also the RMBPD, better known as the Cockleshell Heroes, who came to form and are acknowledged today as the forefathers of the current SBS. Wow. That is incredible. And yeah, you're right. The sort of access you can get those flat bottom boats as well into the most shallow waters is, is just amazing. It really means that you can get into places that more heavily laden troops can't. So take us into the personalities of these people. I mean, I'm pretty sure you've got to be outdoorsy. You've got to be a very competent leader. You've got to be pretty sure of yourself, incredibly active and fit. But was this also a volunteer organisation or were these most competent, capable people selected in a mandatory way out of different units? 
No, it was the best of the best. And they were absolutely volunteers. So the story of the commanders, which I tell reasonably briefly at the beginning of the book, because it's relevant to understand it, to see where the SBS come from. The story of the commanders is about volunteers themselves. They all volunteer for hazardous duty. And of course, a lot of it is incredibly hazardous. But the idea of the commanders is they're going to go in, you know, in a big group and they're going to take out something, basically. And they're going to make a lot of noise. So these are, you know, behind the lines troops, but they're hard hitting, you know, really, expert infantry, a bit like the paras, basically. But the SBS, very different mindset. And so the if you just think about this, James, put yourself in one of those canoes. We're in the Mediterranean. We've got a mission on an enemy shoreline, let's say, for example, and this is a real mission, the north coast of Sicily. Of course, you know, completely controlled by the Italians, it being part of Italy, and in a very dangerous part of the Mediterranean for the British, particularly in 1941 and even in 1942. And your mission is to land You're going to be taken there by a submarine. You're going to come up on deck. And by the way, everything, as far as the SBS is concerned, James, happens at night, okay, for obvious reasons. So you're being dropped off a submarine at night in a two-man canoe. You're paddling into an enemy shoreline with no protection to speak of, usually armed with maybe a pistol, possibly a submachine gun, but that's about it, and some explosives, of course, if you're on a sabotage mission. And your job is to get to a railway line and place the explosives all the while knowing that there's a chance of detection, there's really no chance of escape. And the other big heroes in the story, just to add a quick codicil, are the submarine service who take extraordinary risks to insert these guys because the whole point about a submarine, as you know, I'm sure we're all well aware, is they're very vulnerable if they're caught on the surface or indeed just below the surface. And of course, one of the most horrific experiences for a lot of these SBS guys is when that happened and they're depth charged. And all they can do is sit there just like twiddling their thumbs. And it even got to a point where Courtney, the founder of the SBS, wrote a little card saying, this is what you must do in terms of, a de- you know, if a depth charge ever happens, because don't show any fear, you know, just pretend it's not happening. Try and help the crew if you can. But anyway, the broader point to make here is that if you're prepared to go on that sort of mission with that sort of jeopardy at that sort of time of the day, you are uh, not only incredibly brave, but you also have to be a very resourceful person. You have to be an individualist who can, you know, think for himself. If it's a two-man team and one man goes down, the other guy, it's all on him. So these were extraordinary characters, but none of them boastful. There's a sign that Courtney put up very early on in his time with the SBS in which he said, are you a tough man? It was literally over his desk. Are you a tough man? And a lot of people who went into the commanders, you know, had that mindset. It's like, you know, we're tough guys. You know, we're good in a fight. He wasn't interested in those sort of characters. It wasn't about machismo. And it isn't today, James, which you may or may not be surprised to hear. They still very much like to go under the radar. There's a lovely expression, we prefer the twilight while some prefer the limelight. And that quote comes from the current SBS handbook, which is handed out to all their operators. I better be a little bit careful what I tell you about what's in that handbook. But in any case, that's a lovely quote. And of course, it's a bit of a jibe against the SAS. I was going to say, Sol, I was going to say, you know, I wonder who those some might be. But yeah, you made it quite clear. Yeah, there's another quote that actually comes from the Second World War from one of the guys who is in the original SBS. And he says, you know, our sister organization, the SAS, likes to go in the front door and make a lot of noise. And we like to go in the back door, come and leave stealthily. So all those points. And it's that sort of character, unassuming, quiet, but highly capable. I mean, those are the people who joined the original SBS and I think to a certain extent still do today. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. How do you even begin to prepare for that sort of mission? I remember my granddad said, and this is a story that I think went through my dad to me, so I don't have a clue how much of this is true. So he was in the Royal Navy during the Second World War and he was said that he was selected for SBS training and it was the hardest thing he'd ever done. Now this could have been just the most hardest survival training led by someone from the SBS, but it taught them the most extreme survival skills. I mean, I think even things down to like, how to cook human flesh to survive, and so on and so forth. What did the training actually involve? How did they get ready for these incredibly, insanely daring missions? Well, it's slightly dependent on which unit you were in, but if we just stick with Courtney for a second, and I think there are certain similarities between all the different units, but first of all, extreme physical fitness, just like there is today, and endurance, of course. So they would take them on, you know, missions or at least exercises for missions that would test their endurance and their ability just to keep going. And again, you can see that in special forces training today. So I'll give you a very quick example there. One particular mission which really caught my eye because my eyebrows were raised very high was a canoeing exercise over two days and nights in Scotland in the summer of 1940. And they traveled 140 miles in two days and two nights by canoe. Now, if you've ever canoed a mile, you'll know that it's incredibly tough on your upper body. But we are talking in open water for part of this exercise. You know, really extreme physical conditions. And by the way, just a very quick uh, add-on to that, James, there is some talk, mad talk, I think, 
that myself and possibly James Holland and maybe one or two other historians are actually going to try and recreate this next year, hopefully with some SBS minders. It seems totally mad to me. And they did that in two days, two days, two nights, sleeping rough, and then canoed most of the way back. So, you know, that extraordinary physical endurance. And by the way, when I asked how long do you think it might take us not being, you know, in a prime of our life anymore and not being SBS trained, the current guy advising us said, Oh, maybe seven to 10 days. (laughs) So you're talking about four or five times the amount we would need to complete that. We'll see if that actually comes off. Well, I'll be on the camera boat next to you, Sol, and I'll meet you in the pub afterwards. (laughs) As you know, James takes his podcasting very seriously too. I mean, you know, I think he's very keen to cover as much of that as he can, but it would be a lot of fun. But, you know, so while you've got the endurance on the one hand, you've also got the technical ability that they had to learn. They had to learn the use of explosives. They had to learn all different types of weapons, of course, needless to say, all the enemy weapons as well. But also, I think you hinted at this, the ability to survive. And there's one of the funniest stories in relation to the book came about with this guy called Branson, Jim Branson. Now, Jim Branson, believe it or not, is the current Virgin founder's great uncle. So he was well known in the Second World War as the so-called man who eats grass. He was an eccentric who'd given away his estate in Surrey or somewhere on the South Coast and gone to live in Clapham, which wasn't anything like as prepossessing as it, as it is today in 1940. And it set himself up in a house there as a, basically a person who taught survival skills. And he learned and became experienced at eating all different kinds of plants. So he's called up to Scotland to teach the guys how to live off the land. But the problem is he's 70 years old and his method of transport to get to Scotland is a bicycle. So it takes him a week, apparently, which is going to take me a week to, you know, move that short distance in a canoe. Took him a week to cycle up there. And he apologized when he got there. He apologized to Courtney by saying, I'm so sorry. I had to stop, you know, at the various points on the coast to try out the seaweed. But I'm here now and I'm going to show you guys what to do. So anyway, they have this brilliant demonstration where he's getting together all different kinds of grasses and plants and, and telling them, listen, the only thing you really need to avoid is grass that comes from a bowling green because it's got motor engine oil in it and you don't want that. But, you know, it won't taste so nice. But other than that, you know, pretty much anything of a certain type without, you know, that doesn't have too many kind of obvious flowers on it is edible. And he then shows them how to do this. He mixes up a paste and he puts a bit of bran with it and some vinegar and and they eat it and it's utterly revolting. But to (laughs) prove the point... Courtney insists that his guys live on this for the next two or three days, you know, just surviving on this. So they've got to make it themselves, basically. They're given the raw material. And they're absolutely horrified. And they're, as Courtney puts it, they're screaming for steak after two or three days. At which point, Branson, who's still hanging around, says, well, you know, can I talk to you now about seaweed? And they say, no, no, you've spoken too well and too long. And actually, I think we're okay now. And they send him off back to London. But it's just a lovely story. And no one wants to go on and live on seaweed for another three days. I can only imagine what it was like to share a latrine at that time, Sol. Well, exactly. (laughs) Not ideal. Now, the SBS is, as we said, not as famous or as well-known as the SAS for obvious reasons. But they are just as daring, nonetheless. Some may say more so. So what missions should we know about from the Second World War that we just don't? Well, I think one of the greatest missions was the... I mean, it's amazing, given the proximity of the location that we don't know about this, James. And tell me if you do, by the way, but I'd be surprised if you do, because I'd never heard of it. And James Holland, who reviewed the book, had never heard of it. So in April 1942, Boulogne, of course, was under enemy occupation, and it was a major channel port facing the UK 
that the Germans were determined to defend very heavily. Think Dieppe in 1942. And frankly, you couldn't get within an inch of it. So what do the SBS decide to do? They're going to launch an operation that will penetrate the defences of the port and sink a tanker that has copper ore on it, which of course was an absolute vital mineral for the Germans at that time. You know, even conceiving of the idea that you might pull that off was mad. What actually happens is even madder. So this canoe with just two men in it is dropped off. One of them, a guy called Captain Montanaro, who goes on to become Courtney's second in command. But anyway, Captain Montanaro and his paddler, Sergeant Priest, are dropped off three miles from the entrance of Boulogne for obvious reasons. You can't get too close. They're dropped off by motor launch, not sub this time. In the channel, generally speaking, they didn't use big subs because it's, you know, it's a much more enclosed area and it's much more dangerous for them. So they're dropped off by a motor launch and they then paddle against the winds for an hour over this heavy distance, by which point not only are they knackered, but they're almost discovered as they enter the port area, the outer harbour, which is where the ship is, because (laughs) there are various German sentries in position and they're actually having a party. And at one point, a beer bottle is thrown over the parapet of this kind of force guarding the entrance, which lands right next to the boat. It doesn't hit it and no one notices that they're there. They keep going. And then we get to the real jeopardy of the mission because the canoe, the Folbot, is holed on a rock, a sunken rock that they can't quite see. Now, this is the point at which you've got to cancel the mission because, frankly, it's leaking, it's going to fill with water and you're never going to get away. But what do they do? They stuff a cap comforter, which is a commando woolly hat, in the hole and carry on. Now, of course, this isn't going to stop the water getting in. So it's really now a race against time. And I could go on long and deep into this story. It's an amazing story. They get to the target. They put on seven of the eight limpet mines. The last one, I think, slips down to the bottom of the seabed, but the other seven are put there. And by the way, when they'd made the decision to carry on, they also primed the limpet mines. In other words, they set the fuses running and there's no way back from that, okay? So that's the point of no return too. They put the mines on the hull of the ship. They get away. They're within 10 to 15 minutes of sinking entirely because the boat's half full of water now when they're finally picked up. And it's an amazing act of navigation that gets them to the exact point that they need to be picked up. And by the way, being picked up James, as you can probably imagine, it was often one of the most dangerous points of the whole exercise because the chances of you actually meeting, you know, your pickup vehicle in the right place was vanishingly small. And I could tell you of many, many instances where they never do get picked up. Some of them drown, some of them are captured by the enemy. So this is a good story in the sense that it works. The mines go off, the ship is sunk, and it never gets into the public consciousness at the time, of course, because there's a news blackout of the operations that they're carrying out. But even more amazingly than that, it's not well known to this day. Montanara is awarded a DSO. The other guy gets the DCM, DSM. Can't remember. One of the two. I know one's for Navy and one's Army. But in any case, they are recognised. But frankly, it deserved a VC, in my view. But hardly anyone's heard of it. 1942, you know, great raid on the port of Boulogne. It really does show the ingenuity and the bravery and the skill of the personnel. But you alluded to a point there that I'd like to go just a little bit more detail into. What was the attrition rate of these missions? How often was it that the crews that were sent out on an SBS raid would just not come back or they'd end up as prisoners? Well, it was pretty bad, actually. Um, You'd have to add together all the different units to work out an overall attrition rate. And that in itself is quite tricky because not all all the missions have been accurately documented. But what I can give you, I can give you a couple of examples. I mean, when COP began, 
COP was started by someone who'd become a, you know, a partner of Courtney in the early days, a man called Wilmot. Wilmot was naval. And Wilmot realised very early on, to make amphibious landings, you needed information about the beaches. So it's basically beach reconnaissance, but in huge amounts of detail, not only the navigational information, but also the beach defences themselves. And so he set up a unit that would basically gather all this information. And in its early days, and this is the beginning of 1943, when they're preparing for the Husky landings in Sicily, the first time copper is properly used, they lose about 80% of their men, both drowned captured and killed. And the drowned are interesting, James. We'll never know for sure, of course, because they never lived to tell the tale. But Wilmot himself was convinced that some of the people involved who had undoubtedly drowned had effectively committed suicide rather than allow themselves to be captured and potentially give the game away for Husky. So incredibly brave. And in the early days, they had very rudimentary equipment. I mean, one of the reasons why we think some of the guys drowned off Sicily is because the swimsuits that they had at that time, effectively the wet, you know, rudimentary wetsuits or dry suits, as you might call them actually today, the seals didn't work properly and the water got in and, you know, and they got waterlogged, they couldn't swim and they drowned. So incredibly dangerous, but the most infamous mission of all, one that is probably the best known mission, you know, you ask which ones do we not know about most of the book, frankly, but this one people do know about. And that, of course, is Operation Frankton, which is the Cockleshell Heroes raid on Bordeaux. I mean, think about this. If you think Boulogne was mad, this one really was off the chart loony because six pairs of canoeists are going to be dropped off by canoe five miles from the mouth of the Gironde estuary, which, of course, will eventually lead up the river to, uh, 60 miles, by the way, up the river to Bordeaux. Uh, and they're going to paddle in stages at night and try and avoid an area which is, frankly, crawling with German guards. And even worse than that, when they get there, they're going to try and sink multiple ships that are fast transport ships that are carrying vital raw materials between Japan and the Axis forces in Western Europe. Now, the real point about this story is that there was no escape. So it really was as close as any mission I've read about in the Second World War that was a suicide mission. It was led by a guy called Blondie Hasler, who'd set up the Cockleshell Heroes. And Hasler basically told the guys, well, of course, there's no proper exit strategy because we can't do what we would normally do, which is canoe back down the water and get to a sub because we won't have time. You know, the bombs will have gone off, the mines will have gone off and the, and the place will be crawling with Germans. So what we're going to do is we're going to ditch our canoes and try and go over land. Now, the problem with this is that hardly any of these guys actually spoke French apart from Hasler. And therefore, it's probably not a coincidence that the only pair who got away were Hasler and his paddler, Bill Sparks. But here's the attrition rate. Ten guys set off on that mission to get all the way to the Spanish border, having put their minds on the ships. One other pair of canoeists get as far as Bordeaux, and they also sink some ships. But of those other eight, two drown, six are captured, and all six are executed by the Gestapo. And this is just after the commando order, is it? the infamous Hitler befell commando order, which basically meant anyone who's committing behind the lines operations is at risk of being shot. And that's exactly what happened to these guys. So I could talk to you about this all day. There is mission after mission in the book that each one of them deserves their own podcast episode. So you need to tell us, where can people go and buy the book? 
Well, amazingly for one of my books, and I know this might sound like I'm going properly down market, but this genuinely is a good thing if you want to sell a lot of books. You can even buy it in the supermarket. So, of course, you can get it on Amazon. Of course, you can get it in Waterstones. A lot of wonderful independent bookshops like Toppings in Bath, which is near where I live. But you can also, unbelievably, and for the bargain price of £11, buy it at the moment in Asda and Sainsbury's. So, you know, plenty of options. There you go. 11 quid. Asda and Sainsbury's. Perfect. Thank you so much, Sol, for coming back on the podcast and we're going to get you on again soon. Cheers, James. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.